Yes, this is Behind the Lens. I'm Debbie Elias, film critic, creator, and host of Behind the Lens. And you can find my movie reviews and interviews in the U.S. and abroad and print and online on BehindTheLensOnline.net. But every Monday, right here on Adrenaline Radio, 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern Time. And it's hard to believe it's already July. Uh, Half the year is gone. The summer is now in full swing, and this is a tremendous week. It is the 4th of July. Uh, I think 90% of everyone I know is either taking off Monday, Tuesday, so they have a Friday, Saturday, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday holiday. The other half are taking it off on the back end to get a five-day holiday. Um, But whatever you're doing this week, have a happy and safe 4th of July. But we're going to talk about three, three films in particular today. One is, of course, The Catcher Was a Spy, and I think battling Nazis is a fun thing to talk about Fourth of July week, and The Catcher Was a Spy is directed by Ben Lewin, written by Robert Rodat, who wrote Saving Private Ryan, and it stars Paul Rudd, along with Mark Strong, Guy Pierce, Paul Giamatti, Jeff Daniels, um... It's just Tom Wilkinson. It is an amazing, amazing cast. But it tells the story of Mo Berg. Now you ask, who is Mo Berg? Well, 4th of July week, it seems only fitting that we're talking about a film about battling Nazis, but also about America's greatest pastime, baseball. Mo Berg was a catcher. He was a professional baseball player back in the, in the early years of baseball. Uh, he play, he, I think he played for almost every team there was before he was offered a job with the OSS as a spy. And it all revolved around the Manhattan Project and the rumor mill that the Nazis were developing their own atom bomb. Uh, Werner Heisenberg, who was the 1932 Nobel Prize winner for quantum physics, was behind that. And Berg was hired. His job as a spy was to cozy up, meet uh, <clears throat> meet Heisenberg, and if need be, kill him. Uh, it's a very interesting character study. More so than that, it's a, it's a timeless piece. Uh, it was shot on location in Prague, so you have the benefit of the old world architecture, but you also have the benefit of the the tragedies of war that still remain to this day. Uh, ben Lewin has surpassed himself as a director on that film. So I can't wait for you to hear our conversation talking about that. But we're also going to go take a look at some Neighbors in Iceland with Hofstein Gunnar Sigurdsson's latest film, Under the Tree. And Good Neighbors, Bad Neighbors, you see it all play out here in this dark, dark, dark comedy. Uh, Hafstein is an absolute delight to talk to, and I have never, in, in my 30 plus years, I have yet to interview a director who had to go, cast a tree, so you're going to get to hear all about how you cast a tree, and the tortures of the dam that you have to go through when doing so in order to get the look in your film that you want. But before we hear from Ben and from Hafstein, you know, this is like six degrees of Paul Rudd day. Um, Catcher was a spy, stars, stars Paul Rudd. Hofstein's first film, either way, which was later remade as Prince Avalanche by David Gordon Green, starred Paul Rudd. But then we've got Ant-Man and the Wasp opening on Friday. And let me tell you, it is, as much as I love The Incredibles, uh, half... Uh, Ant-Man and the Wasp is right up there as it's a, they pack a one-two punch and I can't recommend it highly enough. It is larger than life laughs. Um, the laughs abound from beginning to end. 
perfect comedic, time, comedic timing from an incredible cast of, of actors. And the real breakout here is Evangeline Lilly as Hope, as Hope Pym, a.k.a. the Wasp. Um, she is a scene stealer. She is fabulous as the Wasp. And I think she really does kick more butt than Paul Rudd, Scott Lang, or Ant-Man. Um, one of the great fun things in this film, you will get to hear David Cassidy singing a Partridge Family song, not once, but twice. And I don't think this has ever happened in recorded history. Um, but the beauty, the real beauty of Ant-Man and the Wasp is the incredible script. We go beyond the performances. We know most of these characters, um, we became familiar with them in Ant-Man. We got to learn more about Scott Lang in Avengers Civil War. Um, we will see more from Scott Lang in Infinity War. I, I'm hoping we see the Wasp in there, too. But the beauty here is the laughter and the love on full display. It's worn on the sleeves of the characters, thanks to the father-daughter dynamics between Scott and his daughter Cassie who we fell in love with in the first Ant-Man, and Abby Ryder Forster, she returns as Cassie, and of course, Hope and Hank Pym. Uh, in the case of Hope and Hank, a daughter's love fuels him ever forward, while with Scott and Cassie, it's Cassie's love and the honesty of a child that pushes him forward. There is a joy in the relationship between Scott and Cassie that Paul and Abby just explode on screen with. It makes your heart smile, and it fills you with joy and hope. And their chemistry is incomparable. And they, seriously, you watch them together, they're like two peas in a pod. And there's never a moment you don't believe their father and daughter. Similarly with Michael Douglas and Evangeline Lilly. But on more of adult level, but every once in a while you see the sentiment of a, of, daddy-daughter when Hope would have been younger pop in and it's beautiful beautiful to see we of course have a new villain this go-round and more than one I'll let you I'll fill you in on but it's it's the story Peyton Reed has outdone himself writer-director it's Peyton's first sequel he's never done a sequel before um, Paul Rudd is also one of the writers story perfectly ties in Scott Lang's appearance in Civil War, sets the stage for what's to come. We have no loose ends, so everything, as with everything in the MCU, it fits together, and it works beautifully. Supporting cast, again, Michael Pena, there are no words. There are no words for him. He is hilarious. Hilarious. Bobby Cannavale is back. Judy Greer is back. Uh, Walton Goggins is on hand as a new villain. Um, cinematographer Dan, uh, Dante Spinotti does an incredible job with the cinematography shot on location in San Francisco. They really push the visual limits here, uh, as well as with the effects, with the rapid-fire miniaturization of everything, and particularly the third act. Uh, and then we really delve into the quantum realm in this film. The visual effects are such, they're award-worthy, as is the editing by Dan Liebenthal and Craig Wood. Uh, for my money, they have some of the tightest editing out there this year. I would put them high on my potential list for Oscar consideration right now, um, particularly with the third act. And they maintain a pacing throughout the film. So that you are constantly, you never lose your engagement, you never lose the energy. It's fabulous. But, you know, again, the visuals in the quantum realm, which are elevated because of Dan and Craig's editing work, is also absolutely breathtaking and stunning. So, during the recent press conference, I had a chance to not only comment to Paul and, Ka and Peyton in the cast on the family-friendly humor. Uh, the humor in this film, li from little kids to the oldest multi-generational matriarch patriarch, will laugh. The jokes are, are family-friendly. You can't go wrong with them. 
take your two-year-old, take your three-year-old. If they'll sit through a movie, they'll laugh. And, of course, Anton the Ant is back, so who doesn't love Anton? But during the press conference, the recent press conference, I had a chance to also to ask Peyton Reed about the editing uh, by Dan and Craig. So take a listen to what he had to say. I've got to congratulate all of you. This is the humor in this film is so family-friendly. Little kids are going to love the humor in this film. It sets it apart and distinguishes it from the other films in the MCU, I think. So kudos to you, Paul, as one of the writers, to you, Peyton. Really. But I want to ask Peyton, on a technical level, the editing in this film is so perfect. It is so rapier. Dan and Craig... What kind of tortures of the dam did you guys go through to establish your pacing, but particularly with that third act interlineating between the car chase, quantum realm, car chase, quantum realm? I was on the edge of my seat, that entire sequencing. It was so tight. Oh, thank you. Yeah, well, first of all, we had two incredibly talented editors, Dan Levendahl and Craig Wood. They're um, supremely talented, and we've worked with them before. Um, and we knew that sequence, you know, we were going to be cross-cutting, as you said, between the chase and the quantum realm, and both inform the other one. Um, and it's just a, a matter of, like, going through the whole process of how tight can we make it, shifting things around. And, you know, you always have a plan going in, and we were really meticulous in the way we planned it. But then you get in the editing room, <clears throat> you discover things, and it's a whole other part of the process. And what if we put this here and did this and having the build? So it was just constantly refining the thing, and it's, um, you know, we wanted it to be as, as tight as possible. We always had this Ant-Man philosophy on the first movie and on this one. I always wanted these movies to be under two hours, firstly because they're comedies, and secondly because the first one's sort of a heist movie, and this is still sort of a crime-slash-science-fiction-slash-Elmore-Leonard novel-as-Marvel movie thing, and it needed to have a lot of forward momentum. Um, and we looked at a lot of things, you know, from Bullet, Steve McQueen movie, and, and, of course, What's Up, Doc, the Bogdanovich movie, which has the most insane chase through San Francisco. These were big inspirations to the movie. Um, but thank you for saying that. Yeah, because it was, um, you know, trying to get everything to work and be as, as, as tight as possible was important. Something revelatory that came out during the Ant-Man and the Wasp press conference, Evangeline Lilly science geek, physics geek, and take a listen to her explanation of the quantum realm and quantum theory. And I think many of you will come up with the same thing that I came up with listening to her. I think that she may have laid the groundwork for what we might see unfolding with Infinity War and what Thanos has done with half of the, of the population. So take a listen to Evangeline Lilly talking quantum theory. I really love quantum physics and always did before this happened. And that's one of the reasons I was excited about this brand was I really dig quantum physics. And, you know, at one point we thought the atom was the be-all, end-all, that everything ended at the atom. That was the smallest nucleus in the world. But actually we discovered that the atom is, is kinetic and that atoms exist in multiple places at the same time. And that was scientifically proven. And once you discover that, then you know that matter is kinetic and matter is displacing all the time. And if it can be displaced, it can be warped. And so if you can... <laughs> and so, so if you can warp it, then you can warp size, you can warp matter. And also, can you warp time? Can you warp reality? Can you warp universes, right? What if, what if the way you see blue is the way I see red? Oh, dude! <laughs> dude! You, my mind is... Whoa! <laughs> and that was filling you in just a, with a touch of the Ant-Man and the Wasp. And again, I can't recommend it highly enough. It is fun for the entire family, from the smallest little toddler at home to the eldest matriarch or patriarch of the family. It is truly a family experience, and the daddy-daughter moments are just beyond priceless and precious. But moving on from the quantum realm, you know, let's take a jump back in time, back to the time of World War II with Ben Lewin's new film, The Catcher Was a Spy. 
And, of course, it's a perfect follow-up to Ant-Man and the Wasp, especially since Paul Rudd also stars in Catcher as the enigmatic Mo Berg. Mo Berg, uh, interesting, interesting character in history. And it's a man I had not heard of before until this movie. And the film is so well done that it sent me in search of additional information on Mo Berg. Mo Berg was actually, he was a baseball player, a professional baseball player. Uh, I'm wondering, in looking at his background, whether there was any team that he missed playing playing for. But what he also was, was extremely intelligent, uh, fluently spoke, wrote over 12 languages, very quiet man. There were rumors about his sexuality over the years, but nothing was ever confirmed. He was very elusive. And he was also very inquisitive because of his high intellect. And on a peacekeeping baseball mission to Japan with an all-star team that went to play in Japan prior to the outbreak of World War II and Pearl Harbor, uh, Mo actually took his home movie camera and on the top floor of a hospital was shooting out a shooting film of what was happening in the Naval Harbor in Tokyo, and it was that information that he then took to what was then the OSS uh, with the United States government, at which point he was recruited to be a spy, Uh, but not just any spy. At the time, we were in the race for creating the atom bomb with the Germans. The United States had the Manhattan Project. The Germans had (coughs) Professor Werner Heisenberg who had won the 1932 Nobel Prize for quantum physics. And rumors abounded that he was closer than the U.S. to developing the atom bomb. And Moe's assignment was to meet up with Heisenberg and actually kill him. Uh, While Berg said he had no issues doing that, he would first... He wanted to meet the man and size him up, and he would know, based on questions, if he was actually close to creating the the atom bomb for the Nazis. Ben Lewin takes us on this incredible journey throughout Europe, throughout Moe's escapades. The production values are impeccable. Production designer Luciana uh, Arrighi is her work is gorgeous, stunning, the old world feel. Shot on location in Prague, uh, which is absolutely stunning, because we get they're actually in the moment battle scenes, and you'll hear the glee in Ben Lewin's voice in this upcoming conversation with Ben that he got to actually have a Sherman tank. Now, every little boy always wants to play with tanks and and play army. So Ben really got to do that and had actual weaponry used in the film. So you'll get to hear his glee talking about that. And, of course, the cinematography in this film, beyond reproach. Um, Andrich uh, Parkett, who did Zookeeper's Wife, Blue Valentine, Madame Bovary, And Mississippi Grind, another film with a distinctly different palette, but it's stunning if you want to see two great examples of his cinematography. And working with him, Ben Lewin branched out into a multi-camera format for the first time in his filmmaking career. Um, So it's just a fascinating film. The cast is beyond reproach. You've got Paul Rudd playing Mo Berg. You've got Jeff Daniels as OSS supervisor Bill Donovan. You've got Guy Pierce doing his very best uh, MacArthur impression for uh, a younger general named Bob Furman. You've got Paul Giamatti as a physicist working on the Manhattan Project. You have Mark Strong playing Werner Heisenberg. You've got Tom Wilkinson. It is an international cast that is outstanding. So take a listen now to what Ben and I talked about in the making of The Catcher Was a Spy. And uh, by the way, adapted from Nicholas uh, uh, Dawadoff's book by Robert Rodat, who wrote Saving Private Ryan. 
Here is my conversation with Ben Lewin talking. The catcher was a spy. Well, hello, Ben. How is my friend? Hello. <laughs> I remember you. I am so happy to be talking to you again. I have been... Lovely. Ever since you told me about Catcher, when we talked about Please Stand By and did the Q&A, and, and I immediately contacted Falco, and they said, okay, we don't have links yet, but as soon as we do, and they'll tell you, I hounded them, I have to see this, I have to see this, Ben... Oh, my God. I honestly think this is your best work yet. Oh, wow. Thank you so much. I'm blushing. You told me this was something different for you. This is beyond different, but at the heart of it, it is a beautifully told story. It's a fascinating story. I knew nothing about Moberg, and you just reeled me in to the point that as soon as I finished the movie, I had to go start looking up articles and researching him. I was so intrigued. Yes, it, 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 it's never-ending. There's more out there than you can imagine. How did... Was this another one of your... Because I know, it's like the sessions... You're scrolling the internet, all of a sudden a story comes to you. These things just happen to find their way to you through the ether. So I'm curious how this story, which is so buried in our history and part of the World War II history, how you how did this find its way to you? You know, these things happen in the most banal ways, really. It was, I think it just started with some kind of social conversation that uh, a, a friend of mine, and, and I think John Hawkes from The Sessions, was mm -hmm. talking to the producers of this movie, Jim and Tatiana, and, and sang me up a storm and said, oh, you've got to have this guy. And before I knew it, you know, I'm reading this uh, uh, amazing story and thinking, wow, uh, it, it sucked me in the same way as you. So uh, it's just serendipity. Most of these things happen by serendipity rather than design. Well, I'm glad Serendipity smiled on you again with this one, because I've got to tell you, Ben, this, I mean, number one, you're starting with undoubtedly a great script, courtesy of Robert. I mean, Saving Private Ryan, one of the seminal all-time films on the war period. Here we get a different aspect, the spy aspect, but you have a man writing it who knows that era intimately. Uh, then you bring these, you, you bring it all together with an intense character study of Mo Berg. So we're actually getting, you're delivering us a two-pronged thing here, Ben. You're giving us the intense character study on Mo, but also a real, a really in-depth, insightful history lesson as well. well. It is about the birth of the atom bomb, ultimately. Which, yes. You, you know, I grew up um, in the Cold War when, when all that was kind of frighteningly real. And, you know, is in a, a spooky way becoming real again. Mm-hmm. So, I, I mean, you, you know, and I was, I was born, um, my birthday is Hiroshima Day. Oh, wow. So, I, you know, things to do with the atom bomb has a, have a special resonance for me. Mm-hmm. You know, how, how did... Also, the idea of having a kind of a Jewish James Bond figure, kind of irresistible. That really is one of the intriguing elements and what you and your cinematographer, oh, I love his work. I always have. And Andre is great. Andre, oh, and after seeing what he did with Zookeeper's Wife, he was, your, yeah. he was the perfect choice for this film. Yes, yes, he was. And he taught me a lot of things, you know. He kind of brought me into the modern age a bit. <laughs> yeah. And I lost my fear of multiple cameras, you know, I'm really old, old world in a way, but, but this really kind of um, made me think in a more modern way. Well, and I, I think that we, you know, we had the same kind of imagery in mind. We were both thinking about movies like um, The Third Man and The Conformist. Mm. Um, and and you know, looking at those, looking at those movies very carefully. So I, I mean, that was a, a really delightful collaboration for me. Well, I love the entire visual palette the two of you create, and it really, 
here is an, a case where cinematography and production design are so synergistic and so hand-in-hand. Hand. Um, Luciana's production design is absolutely stunning. I look at yeah. the location... Well she's, well, she's sort of a bit of everything, Luciana. <laughs> she's the most international character I know. <laughs> um, Luciana Arrighi. I, I mean, um, uh, she did... Uh, oh, Room with a View. I mean, she's done some amazing films, and... and She's just incredible to work with. Well, what I find so fascinating about Luciana as the production designer is she has covered so many eras in history, but she's never really done a World War II period piece. I think the closest she came was Return of the Soldier, which was just post-World War I. You really do your homework. Uh, Ben, for you in particular, I uh, will always make sure... But, yeah, I thought... But, um, I I mean, um, she was one of those designers that is always there. You you, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Frequently a designer will not necessarily be on set with you, uh, you know, rolling with the punches, but but Luciana is totally kind of hands-on, down to the last detail. Well, the details here are just exemplary, from tiny little tchotchkes that are... At the Princeton reunion, uh, sitting on tables, down to salt shakers. Um, yes. And then even in Europe, in the various places we go with the Italian scientist in his small homey place there in the midst of battle, or the classroom where, you know, where um, Heisenberg is speaking. I mean, all the... Interestingly enough, we had a, a physics professor from the University of Prague to design the blackboard for us because I, I wanted it to mean something. I just didn't want it to be gibberish. So he designed the whole blackboard to, you know, to have some relevance to what he was saying. And, you know, he asked me, is there anything else I can do to help you? And he, I said, yeah, tell me the truth about Heisenberg. And he kind of smiled and said, nobody knows. Wow. So, I felt that was kind of quite a moment. That's that's a real moment, Ben. Yes, yes. But, you know, that's some... Um, you know, that was one of the mysteries, having to kind of make a, a, a judgment call on history. Um, and, you know, the debate about Heisenberg goes on. Yeah. Was he a good guy? Was he a bad guy? And, and Mo Berg was caught up in the center of that debate and had to make a... a a moral decision. Mm-hmm. And you know, th- interestingly enough, when they put the same question to um, Oppenheimer, you know, General Groves, who was in charge of the Manhattan Project, when he asked Oppenheimer, what, what do we do about Heisenberg? Oppenheimer said, oh, just kill him. <laughs> <laughs> he, he didn't have any qualms. <laughs> One physicist to another. So they were pretty exciting times. Well, what I find very fascinating is what that you and Robert and Paul, in creating Mo, and he is just an everyman. Granted, he is an extremely intelligent everyman. Uh, but instead of all the military bravado and cloak and dagger that feels so secretive that we're so used to seeing, here you have Paul as Mo Berg, playing the character very matter-of-factly. We're losing a lot of the cloak and dagger. Secrecy is common to him. It's not like a Matahari moment where, you know, the music rises and everybody is, you know, oh, something's up. The casual ease with which he plays Mo is what heightens, you know, subliminally, subconsciously heightens the intensity of the situation because if you really want to get into something and understand it you're not going to be all fidgety and nervous much like Paul Giamatti made Sam you're going to be very casual and very easy about it so it's very matter of fact and that is what I really found most striking about what you guys developed here it's very you know there is a kind of a naturalism yeah. You know, as an actor and a, as a human being. Um, and and the, the difficulty about Mo Berg is 
that he was an elusive character, mm-hmm. very hard to pin down, kind of remote in many ways. And I think kind of Paul's naturalism made him made him relatable. Mm-hmm. I mean, you saw his unusual qualities, but at the same time, he seemed like you know a guy you could meet in the street. Yeah, uh, uh, and and th- th- that's one of the really appealing things about Paul. He do- he he does not appear to act. I mean, he's really wor- he works very hard to get the character, but it uh, you know it has this kind of like I'm not even trying quality about it, which I really love. Mm-hmm. And that's what I love about what he brings to Mo Berg. Mo wasn't trying to be a spy. This was just his secrecy and being quiet and very cerebral. That was just who he was. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, uh, I mean, he kind of managed to reinvent himself several times during his life. Mm Mm-hmm. And... uh, Finally, who he was was, I think, something that evaded even Mo. It was a lifelong search for a character. You know, he never had an address. He never drove a car, never had a driving license. Yeah, and, you know, and I know after the war, from what I then went out and read, I mean, he, he really, it was like he was lost. He was a man without a country almost. Um, a man... Somehow, the war was just a wonderful opportunity for him to, um, uh, you know, realize anything. Uh, And and, uh, it it was like a stage that suddenly disappeared. And it's true, after the war, Mo was a bit of a lost soul. And we didn't really tell that story because I think that, you you know, uh, one important side of him was that he's an unsung hero. Mm-hmm. He put his life on the line, and it was a kind of a challenge to combine the kind of character study of this uh, really enigmatic guy with a an exciting mission story. Uh, um, and, and I hope that's what we got across finally. Well, I think you did, and all and also so much of that also goes to the rest of your cast. I mean, Ben, your cast, yeah. you've got. Tom Wilkinson, you've got Mark Strong, you've got Giamatti, you've got Guy Pierce, Jeff Daniels. Oh my God! Yeah, it became a kind of joke in a way. I'd turn up to set and say, "Well, I wonder what international celebrity is going to turn up this morning." You know, <laughs> <laughs> it was uh, it was great, but it it actually makes life much easier if you're working with actors that you don't have to struggle with. You know, yeah. they just. Um, it's it's like you know performing a symphony and everyone has rehearsed it beautifully. No, it was great. I had a wonderful time working with those guys. You know, now you also do something here I haven't seen in your films before. You actually have a battle sequence. You actually have, and how was that experience for you? And you know, any challenges in executing and bringing to life because that battle sequence much like we've seen from Spielberg with Saving Private Ryan, not so much as what we saw back in the, in the 40s and 50s, but you make it very intimate. There is a lot of close, you know, extreme close-up uh, camera work, but we still, it's wide enough to capture the action. We see bodies falling. You see the squibs and everything flying. What kind of challenges was that for you? As a director, bringing this segment of the film to life? Uh, well, it, it, it was, um, in retrospect, I would say it was a lot of fun. And I think at the time it was fun as well. Number one, I was surrounded by people who had a lot of experience doing this kind of thing. And um, I really... Uh, uh, you know, ultimately, it was a sort of a matter of minute planning. I mean, if you plan it like a ballet mm-hmm. or a cross between a ballet and a battle, you know, one side advances, the other side retreats. Um, so that w- when you're actually shooting it, there's no improvisation. I mean, you know, it's potentially dangerous. 
So you have to know where every every foot is going. You know where where people are walking, running, uh, what what objects are flying through the air. All that has to be anticipated. And I found it absolutely exhilarating. I really did feel like an armchair general. Um, <laughs> and um, the fact is, we did you know plan it down to the last detail and managed to shoot the whole thing in um, two days. Wow. Um, you know, with multiple cameras. And, I, I mean, I'd say things like, do you think I could have a Sherman tank? And I'd, yeah, sure, there's one in Poland. And <laughs> does it actually work? Yeah, it works. <laughs> and all of a sudden, I'd have a Sherman tank to play with. So, um, also, I studied other battle scenes which I knew had been done on a budget. Mm -hmm. And um, it was clear that, you know, in order to really engage, you know, keep the audience engaged in the feel of what it, what it was like, you had to be very close in. Mm -hmm. you, you know, you had to see the expressions on people's faces. And really, some of the most dramatic moments are just... Um, what is written on someone's face. There's a moment when the guy who was looking after Paul Giamatti's character gets shot, and, and you know, Giamatti's reaction is just so real. Yeah. Like a man who's never been in a battlefield before, and and suddenly, you, you know, he doesn't know what's happening. Um, I, I mean, I found that moment uh, really kind of, slightly, you know, somewhat electric. So when it gets down to it, it's not only the pyrotechnics. Essentially, you're talking about the acting. Yes, and you know, and that's you know, that's what I love with the intimacy of battle that you give us, and the fact it's pretty much contained within that courtyard of that city. And it also, yeah. when you have the one scientist is upstairs fixing his bicycle, trying to have yeah. a normal day, it really hits home as to. Battle does, it's in people's front yards. It's in their backyards. That was true. Uh, that, that was a, a, a little fact. I think Judy, my wife, who was one of the producers, uh, was reading about uh, was reading about it and said, you know, he was, he was fixing his bicycle when Berg turned up. And I thought, oh, okay, okay we have to have that in the movie. And <laughs> it really spoke to the guy's character. It was fascinating. Mm -hmm. Did you realize that that was Giancarlo Giannini playing yeah. the scientist? I did. That was exciting to see. Yeah. That was, was one of my heroes. Oh, my God. That's what I mean. I mean, you got everybody who's anybody, and everybody is so perfect in this film, Ben. And, of course, yeah. shooting on location in Prague, because you still have the benefit of that of that period architecture. You have the benefit of bombed out regions and buildings but you also have the beauty and the grandeur the old world style yeah but you you know you also have the talent i mean we did tokyo in prague all the stuff in japan is shot in prague wow so go figure i mean this is a this is just a brilliant piece of design i mean you know when you have the faces the costumes the the, uh, you know, dressing detail, uh, I mean, the whole illusion. Uh, I never, you know, I thought, how are we going to do that? But that, that that was one of the most effective elements, I think. Oh, all, the, the production values, they're so high on this one, Ben. It's, you know, it just makes it. Well, I mean, also the battle scene, I, I really, during my whole work, the body count has not, my body count has been pathetic. So I thought, oh, I've got to kill me a few Nazis to kind of really raise my body count to something respectable. I have to ask you about your music. Ben, Howard Shore does an amazing job with the score, but then you also, your specific pieces that you include, you've got some Debussy, some Haydn, beautiful, beautiful classical pieces that just elevate the classic element of the time period the beauty set against the horror of war. You know, how, how difficult was it to find the right music for this film? Um, 
Well, I, you know, my my son Oliver is um, uh, a composer as well, and he gave me a lot of excellent advice and sourced, uh, pretty much put together the temp track, mm-hmm. pushed me toward using Howard Shaw. So I have to give him a lot of credit for um, uh, contributing to that. We also had a lovely, uh, wonderful music supervisor, Justine Win- Winterfeld, and... Uh, and the fact is that um, Mo's girlfriend, Estella, was a classical pianist. Mm-hmm. And it was really an expression of her character, the, the music that she sh- chose to play, uh, you know, which was part of the atmosphere of the movie. But really it came from the sense that, you know, he was um, living with a classical musician. Mm. Oh, absolutely. And your films are not, typically they have not, you can't really expand the musical expression with the films you've done in the past. And in this one, you really, you got to expand as a director on so many levels here, Ben. It just thrilled me. Watching. I'm only just warming up. I'm so glad to hear that. As always, it is a joy to talk to you, Ben. Yes, and please give my best to Judy. I sure will. And on what has slowly turned into a six degrees of separation of Paul Rudd day on Behind the Lens, I want to now turn our attention to Iceland and director Hafstein Gunnar Sigurdsson with his newest film, Under the Tree, a dark, dark, dark comedy. And the reason that I mentioned Six Degrees of Paul Ru- Separation of Paul Rudd is because Hafstein's first film, Either Way, was remade by David Gordon Green as Prince Avalanche, starring, you guessed it, Paul Rudd. Uh, this go-round, Hafstein, his film Under the Tree, we're talking a dark, dark, dark black comedy. And it is absolutely delicious. Co-written by Havstein and Huldar Bridesford. This takes the description of being a bad neighbor to a whole new level as we watch couples Baldwin and Inga, Conrad and Iborg, as they battle out over a tree that is in Baldwin, Baldwin and Inga's yard, but it casts a shadow on Conrad and his younger trophy wife. But then we get into other issues involving Inga and the fact that a son is missing. Did he commit suicide, as is alluded to and stated by others? Is he just missing? Which sets up a whole dynamic for her surviving son, who is, was caught watching himself having sex on a video in his house that his wife saw him doing. Um, so that sets up a whole different thing. So everybody is at odds in this film, but it all stems around this maple tree in the back of Baldwin and Inga's yard. Uh, it is, there are instant instances with a dog and a cat. Um, we've got tire slashing. We've got (coughs) decadent things being done to yard gnomes. Um, it is just fun to watch, but fundamentally, it says a lot about the human condition, about why can't we all just get along, Um, but if we don't, these are some of the ways to resolve the issues. So take a listen to my conversation with Hafstein Gunnar Sigurdsson, talking under the tree. Well, I'm all set to go, Hafstein, if you're ready. I'm I'm good. (laughs) Well, I have to congratulate you on Under the Tree. Thank you. Uh, it is dark, 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 blackest of comedies with a thriller edge to it. I laughed. The final scene of the film, I was rolling with laughter. Okay, that's good. This is, I mean, I grew up in suburban Philadelphia. and. Everybody had yards and trees, and there were always constant battles. 
of neighbors. Oh, your leaves are falling on my yard and I don't want to rake them up. So, so I totally got where this, <laughs> where you were with this. You know, my biggest question is actually, where did you find that gorgeous tree that served as the anchor for ever, for everything that was branching out within the yeah. film? That was well, probably one of the hardest uh, technical, technical solutions we had to um, figure out. Uh, because we had the location, but the location didn't have a tree. Um, and we don't have a lot of trees in Iceland, uh, actually. And I had already fallen in love with a maple tree. Um, they're quite rare in the city, and you're not allowed to cut them. Um, but um, we ended up uh, posting an ad in the paper saying that if anybody is thinking about cutting their maple tree, then, you know, we would come and do it and, and you know, pay for it and everything. And luckily, um, one family responded, and they had been thinking about cutting it uh, for a while. But then when they saw our um, advertisement, they um, thought, well, you know, um, if we, you know, donate the tree to the cinema, it's going to have an, et- an eternal life, you know, on the screen. Um, and um, so we ended up cutting the tree, bringing it through, uh, you know, really big open space, filming it from all possible angles. Uh, then we cut the crown off the tree and we moved the trunk to the actual location where we were shooting. Uh, we did all the close-ups with, with the trunk in there in camera, but for all the wider shots we had to, you know, put the, the, the crown back in, in, in the computer in the, in the post-production. So this was quite, a, um, um, you know, complicated uh, thing to figure out and, and, and we were a little bit sort of inviting the wheel because um, uh, nobody had seemed to do this before. <laughs> Did you ever but think... It's, true. it's a very, very important cast, you know, the, the tree. It, it, it has to be this one. Well, and it, I have to say it's a beautiful one, but had I known you needed a maple tree, there is a 65-year-old one still standing in my dad's backyard. I would have been I would have been happy to sacrifice it for you in your film. <laughs> if, if, if we do a sequel, then, then that's good to know. You know where you can find one. Yeah. yeah. You know, did you ever think you'd work on a film where budgeting considerations would now have to include cutting down, moving, and transporting a tree? No. <laughs> I think that's one of the most interesting things about uh, filmmaking is that every film has its own sort of set of problems and complications that you have to figure out and they can be quite you know uh ridiculous you know no i Um, yeah well whatever whatever it did to your budget to get this tree well worth it because it's beautiful and as i said it's because of that tree that everything else branches out in the film which i have your metaphor is so exquisite here with this neighbor neighbor to neighbor battle and the perfectly manicured hedge so yeah. that you know just like the battle lines look at any war in history with lines drawn and yeah. <laughs> but no but what i love though is that everything is operating on assumption uh, nobody yeah. no one sees anything it's all on assumption and then when we see flat tires and when we see little gnomes with their naked butts up in the air um you know nobody i think i think everything in this film could be solved around the table you know if people would just sit down and talk you know instead of yeah making assumptions and and rushing forward in in anger and, and revenge you know i mean it's i love i just love the way you have it constructed but I'm I'm very curious how you came up with all of these little, you know, incidents that we have. You've got all the tire slashing, you have the gnomes, you've got, you know, the dog and the cat battle, you've yeah. got the bicycling, you've got chainsaws, you've got pitchforks. Yeah. All of these instances that you go to the extreme and yet they feel very believable. Yeah. Well, it's kind of like a game of chess, you know, that sort of had to escalate, you know, uh, and, and I mean, 
for me, it's, 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 this is a film about war in a way. And I think, you know, if you look at, you know, history, war is very often uh, a neighborly conflict just on a very big scale, you know. Uh, so I think there is a sort of bigger story in there that we can read, you know, uh, from this in, 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 in a bigger context that sort of, for me, speaks to, you know, uh, world politics of the times, you know. So, mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm cu- one aspect of the story that I'm curious about is Inga's disbelief as to her, her one son that's missing. Um, I, 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 that I found extremely fascinating. And I have to say, Edda's performance is Inga. Yeah. I mean, truly yeah. hard, yeah. nasty, you know, yeah. but controlled. It's, it's, yeah, she, she's actually a, a legendary comedian in Iceland. So this is like her first, like, big dramatic role in cinema. Um, and um, something like which Icelandic audiences hadn't seen her do before, and I hadn't, so I, I was quite excited about that. And I think she did uh, an amazing job. But yeah, there's this sort of underlying trauma, you know, in that family that is sort of the, you know, ignition for all the problems in the film, which is the the, the, the disappearance of the son, which probably is a suicide. But uh, I was researching that a little bit, and and it's very difficult, you know, uh, when when there is no body, there is mm-hmm. the, there is no way of saying like a formal goodbye and sort of move on. You're constantly hoping that the person would come back. So sorrow just keeps coming in in sort of circles, and and in, and people can get really kind of stuck. And I think that's the the, the case with her. Yeah, I mean, her performance really grounds this film. Mm-hmm. And similarly, your characters of Conrad and Balvin, the, mm-hmm. the men, you know, the two elder men, the yeah. father figures have, you know, you make, the, they're like choir boys that are more or less just backing up the lead voices of their wives. Yeah. Um, and, yeah. and that I, because, and it's very much a reversal because so often we think of, you know, the male neighbors are going to be going at each other. But here right. it's the female neighbors, and I I like that twist that you yeah. that you plugged in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it's also there's a certain reference there to the Icelandic sagas, um, which I don't know if you're familiar with, but they're like you know written in the 11th, 12th century in Iceland, which is sort of our, our sort of uh, literature, and there we have this. Uh, uh, strong tradition of, of very strong female characters who are often, you know, the ones who are sort of plotting behind the scenes while the men are more kind of carrying out the, the action, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. No, I mean, I really lo- I love that structure that you brought in there. Mm. You know, and then, of course, you've got Steinthor's performance as Atlee, who is the most hapless, useless son on the planet. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He's also he's also this is the first time for him to to do anything like this. He's um, he's a sketch comedian, a very popular sketch comedian in Iceland. So he's never done like a dramatic role like this before. But I think he did a, a really really good job. And um, and it was something that I wanted you know kind of early figured out early on in the casting uh, uh, process that I wanted to um, cast actors that would have this sort of natural. Uh, comedic element to them because um, I think there is a lot of comedy in the script, but I didn't really want to sort of push for it. I mm-hmm. wanted it to sort of come naturally through, and then I think it was important to have people who would, could do that, you know, without uh, having to try too hard, you know. Oh, the comedy comes through just by the very nature of who these people are. And I mean, that's why, I mean, and I couldn't help but laugh as I'm watching this because you can see there are so many people in your own life that you know that fall into each one of these personas. So it's very, very relatable and very resonant for anybody. Right. You know, I would be remiss to not ask you about your beautiful cinematography and what you and Monica designed and developed for your visual tonal bandwidth. The softness of your exteriors, the wide, the wider framing of the exteriors, absolutely beautiful. And then you have the sharper imagery inside. Mm 
the residence right. is or inside the workplace or school. So I'm, yeah. curi- I'm curious as to how the two of you developed those looks. Yeah. Um, we, I mean, we, we did quite a lot of uh, prep for this film. Luckily, we, we had the you know, um, privilege of doing that, uh, and we really, um, you know, just sort of clicked in, in how to approach the story, you know, visually. And, you know, I mean, yeah, there's a certain sort of coolness in, in all the uh, relationships between the people. So that's sort of something we wanted to express through the color palette of the film. Uh, but we also decided that, you know, the, the, the film it sort of has two story layers. You know, there's this uh, Napoli conflict and then it's Atlas story, uh, the, the custody battle. And um, we really wanted to, yeah, use this sort of whiter, uh, peaceful shots of the neighborhood where, you know, violence is very far away from it, you know. Um, and um, it's, it's something that, um, yeah, it's, it's very kind of, yeah, tranquil and, and, and peaceful. Um, but then you have Atlas Story, which is more kind of tense to begin with, this more kind of handheld uh, and sensitive camera, and then that sort of slowly uh, progresses and the neighborly story becomes more kind of intense and aggressive and, and, and handheld. Mm-hmm. No, I I think it's it's beautiful. The visual, the tone is just absolutely beautiful, and yeah. it just services your story so well. And yeah. it really is exemplary of cinematographic storytelling. So, yeah, I'm very happy, and, and Monica has a great talent, and, and it's, uh, she she did a fantastic job, you know, on on, on the film. And of course, then you insert some beautiful images of sunlight bright sunlight streaming through leaves and the green of the tree leaves and all that really it just gives a sense of you know tradition of you know centuries this goes on for centuries right um, right yeah exactly yeah all these little touches that you put in um yeah. i really appreciate it as i also very much appreciated daniel's score Talk about, a, this is some score. You've got thriller elements. You've got some classical in there. Yeah. What were your discussions like for the kind of, of oral experience you wanted the audience to have? Well, I, I mean, I you know knew I wanted to sort of approach the script like a thriller, uh, which is maybe not that obvious when, when you read the script. Uh, and I knew the music would be really important, you know, uh, to sort of um, bring that element forward. Uh, and I think it was also really important to, you know, set this sort of darker tone, you know, early on in the film to sort of prepare the audience, you know, for that dark place, you know, where the film ends up. Um, and uh, Daniel and I had been looking for a, you know, um, project to do together. We are actually childhood friends. Um, and it finally came with uh, this film and i think it did a really really great job on it i mean i just you know on every level i really love this hofstein i mean it, yeah, thank you. it it's nice you know and you know so now now that you've done this this is your f- third feature film uh, um and you keep expanding your skill set and your palette um yeah. what did you learn in the process of making under the tree as a filmmaker, that you'll now take forward into your future projects? Well, I mean, I think um, um, it was a very, uh, you know, great experience, and I, I learned learned a lot of things from it. I had a lot of challenges and tasks that I hadn't, you know, been confronted with before, um, and, you know, so certainly a, a bigger cast, you know, dealing with a bigger gallery of characters, uh, there was also these technical solutions with the, with the tree and the special effects. Uh, that last scene, I had never done anything, you know, similar to that before. So it was, uh, you know, I think you, you you take a lot of things, you know, from each, each film that hopefully help you advance uh, as, a, as a filmmaker and a storyteller. Well, I can't wait to see what you what you bring us next. Um, because this is just so much fun. Oh, Hostine.
Thank you so much. And I can't wait to talk to you again in the future. Absolutely. Likewise. Thank you. And that is all the time we have today. Can't wait for next week to get here because one of your favorites, Fran Kranz, is back with us live along with writer-director Casey Wilder-Mott. And the two of them are going to talk about one of my favorite films to come out of L.A. Film Festival last year, A Midsummer Night's Dream. So, And Ben Rausch is going to be with us as well, talking about his new single and music video, The Emoji Song, which... Look it up on YouTube. It is absolutely fantastic. So, until next week, I'm Debbie Elias. This is Behind the Lens. (laughs) 